having been in the ZK space for a while, I know how incredibly hard it is to convert those EVM opcodes into circuits. And uh, it's just that to me, it's almost magical on how fast they're doing it, which also kind of scares me. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey guys, how are you? Doing great. Watching the news unfold around all markets. I know I can't. Not just crypto. I'm, ha- I'm having a, I'm having a hard time keeping up. If I'm being honest with you, <laughs> but that's why we have you. <laughs> you <can laughs> provide a summary of everything that's going on. We have quite a bit to cover today. Um, it's myself, Parth, and Jack. Jason's um, Jason's not going to be on today, so we'll try try not to burn the place down while he's gone. Um, but we have a, t- two things that we really want to cover. Um, the first is is obviously kind of what's happening in banking um, and the, kind of the backdrop that that's painted for crypto markets. So Jack is going to be kind of taking us through a summary of the, the events in the last week, including kind of some of the events we saw unfold over this past weekend. Um, and then, you know, again, talking a little bit about what it means for Bitcoin and, and other digital assets. And then um, we're going to spend the second half um, talking about layer twos more broadly. Um, so, but before we jump in, we have Parth this week and we always love to hear what Parth has been up to and what he's been trying. So Parth, uh, do you want to, you want to tell us what you did last week? So I know that it's the season of Arbitrum and so I'm going to stick to, uh, two protocols on Arbitrum, but, uh, instead of one, I'm just going to do two this week because I think they're both pretty innovative and they kind of go hand in hand, right? So typically you hear about lending protocols, taxes, and all the boring stuff, which, all networks have, but I want to give you guys two protocols that I believe are truly unique and they have a decent use case, right? So the first one is called mean finance. And so the idea of mean finance is that it's a protocol where you can DCA or dollar cost average uh, using your wallet, right? So, so you can set up stuff like, hey, swap 100 USDC every single month into ETH for the next four to five months. Right. And so these token swaps would happen irrespective of the price conditions. So instead of worrying about timing, uh, you have DCA where you can kind of space out your average asset price uh, and you can do that on chain. So that's kind of the first one. And uh, I think the question is, what's the real difference of, of having this on chain? There are three big factors. One is that you don't need a KYC account. The second is you don't have any sort of trading limits. And then the third one, which I think is the most important one, which which is why I kind of used it, is that you don't have any sort of transaction fee. So all of these are gasless, and which isn't the case with any of these centralized exchanges. So if you've ever tried using a DCA strategy on Coinbase, Finance, Gemini, whatever exchange, 
you have to pay this recurring transaction fee as well, right? It's typically two ninety nine, three ninety nine, and that's because I, I'm 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 putting in three hundred dollars, but I'm paying one percent of that in every single transaction. So, do you pay a fee upfront when you first make a transaction? No, you do not. So, what they do is they optimize the transactions in such a way that they bundle all of those transactions together for all the participants. So you end up paying like less than a cent per transaction because it's all bundled together. Do you know what like execution looks like, uh, you know, doing DCA this way versus going through a centralized exchange, like in terms of the execution price? Yeah. So you pretty much decide on what timestamp or what time you want to actually place this order. And when do you want these transactions to go through? And so that's all done automatically. So as soon as if I if I place a recurring transaction of converting my USDC into ETH every single day for the next four days, right? So then at 9 a.m., if I go to my MetaMask account, I'm just gonna see my 100 USDC converted into ETH, right? And that just happens uh, instantaneously because uh, you are bundling transactions together. So uh, that's a cool feature. You don't pay transaction fee, but then there are obviously some caveats uh, because you are trusting a smart contract and uh, that's why I tried this new protocol called revoke.cash, right? So, so the idea of revoke.cash is if you've used Uniswap or OpenSea or any of these protocols, you typically have to sign a message first when you interact with the protocol for the first time, where you explicitly grant permission to spend your tokens or, or NFTs. And that transaction is called an allowance transaction, right? So when you use a dApp for the very first time, you sign twice and you give this allowance, which means that that dApp has unlimited allowance uh, to use your tokens, right? So you've kind of granted permission for that specific token to be used uh, by the dApp. So a lot of people think that even if you disconnect your wallet from the application, uh, that, that solves it, but that doesn't do anything, mm. right? So, so the problem is that you have to go on a lot of these websites, you have to go on Etherscan, find the exact contract and then try to do it manually one by one and revoke these allowances. But using revoke.cash, this protocol, uh, you can actually do it periodically. So you don't have to actively go in, go in and then do it manually. So I think it's just for someone like me who's like who uses a lot of crypto native tools and even for someone who's just using any sort of dApps, any ones which you think are risky, I think it's important to take back control by revoking that access periodically. So I, I wasn't super comfortable with mean finance. I tried it for, for a bit. And then I was like, you know what, I'm just going to revoke it. Both of those tools sound like uh, more responsible risk management tools, right? One is dollar cost averaging and the other is, uh, you know, security practices automatically or increasing your, your risk management. They don't sound like uh, crypto degen uh, speculative tools. So Parth, do any of those capabilities relate to kind of the announcement around account abstraction or is this something different entirely? No, this is completely different. So account abstraction lets you have recurring transactions for your NFTs, uh, but this is completely different. So all the optimization is done by the Revoke team. Ideally, they could use something like 4337, but I, I don't think they are. Okay. So, uh, so and, and both of these protocols are uh, on Arbitrum, that's actually how they became popular, uh, especially mean finance. That's why I thought of mentioning them. Got it. All right, cool. So you've been busy this week. <laughs> um, 
All right. So I, I think this is a good this is a good opportunity for us just to jump right in. So obviously there's been over the last, you know, several weeks a ton going on both in the US and outside the US in the banking world. Um, and as we kind of mentioned at the top, having a, having somewhat of a hard time keeping up with uh, you know all of the current events. But luckily for for us um, and for everyone listening, Jack has been very closely watching this stuff and getting very little sleep. So that's great for for us. Um, and so Jack, do you want to do you want to just take us through kind of a summary of the events over last week, and then even you know what we saw last weekend and as recently as today? Yeah. And so on last week's episode, I don't want to sound like a broken record where we're totally repeating all of history because I'm sure a lot of people are sort of actively following along. And and Jason uh, sort of talked about or recap some of the things that happened in the weeks prior. But the, the TLDR of up until last week is we have this main theme of banks and financial institutions that took deposits and took duration risk because yields were low. And so yields being low sort of across the yield curve means that margins will be compressed for these financial institutions. And there wasn't a huge expectation at the time, if we go back into like 2020, 2021, of rapidly rising interest rates, because some of the things the Fed was signaling was that inflation is transitory, there isn't too much to fear here, uh, and and rates were were you know, subdued. And then in 2022, this, this story sort of shifted, where in 2022, rates rose, and then securities or risks on the duration side that banks took became these large unrealized losses. And so while many of these banks weren't able to sort of keep up with prevailing interest rates that you could get on alternative savings accounts or treasuries, uh, and so people started to pull assets, and, and then unrealized losses can become realized uh, when people ask for their assets back, right? You have to liquidate those assets. And so we saw three bank closures, Silvergate, Silicon Valley Bank, and Signature. Silicon Valley Bank and Signature were put under receivership by the FDIC and supposedly are, are trying to be sold off. Um, Silvergate, I believe, liquidated uh, or is in the process of liquidating their assets sort of on their own uh, and and trying to make depositors whole that way. Uh, So we have up until like last week, we have that story. And then towards the end of last week and over this past weekend, I have a few things that I've sort of noted as uh, continuing to see this story evolve. And of course, at that time, we had the Treasury and the Fed start to do things uh, where the Treasury and, of course, as part of you know, taking over Silicon Valley Bank and signature by the FDIC, they made sure that depositors will be made whole in those instances. Uh, the Fed introduced a, a new program uh, to support banks with unrealized losses where they could borrow against these impaired securities that are treasuries or mortgage-backed securities. And so we had all of that happen. And then uh, Thursday, March 16th, so we're we're talking today on Monday, March 20th, on Thursday, uh, the Fed updates its balance sheet weekly late on Thursdays, it typically comes out. And we saw that the Fed added $300 billion to its balance sheet which this was really the first time in like the past year plus that we've seen assets added to their balance sheet in a material way, because what have they been doing? They've been trying to tighten by raising interest rates as well as running their balance sheet off and kind of letting it on, on autopilot, as they would like to say, uh, run off where securities mature and a certain portion of those securities are allowed to, to come off the balance sheet. Um, and, and we saw over the past year about 600 billion wound off the balance sheet from nearly 9 trillion to about 8.4, 8.3 trillion. Now we saw 300 billion added back. So in the course of the past week, 
through all of these different programs and, and these banks looking for liquidity, uh, we saw 300 billion, half of what was ran off over the past year added in the past week. So that's the first thing that sort of came out. Second thing is on Friday, we got news that a number of banks, a number of the large banks, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Citi, uh, and a few others, uh, were joining together to provide $30 billion in deposits for First Republic Bank, which was sort of the, I guess, the fourth bank of this story that was continuing to evolve. And so we saw this happen. Then Saturday and into Sunday, uh, we saw that Credit Suisse was going to be bought or acquired by UBS for about $3 billion, 3 billion Swiss franc. Um, so, it, so it's global now, right, with, with Credit Suisse. And then on Sunday, Sunday night, uh, we saw the Federal Reserve post a blog titled Coordinated Central Bank Action to Enhance the Provision of U.S. Dollar Liquidity. Uh, basically, the, the long story short of this is uh, there are existing U.S. dollar swap lines available for large central banks, and they're increasing the frequency that those are available from a weekly basis to a daily basis, at least through the end of April. What are swap lines for people that don't know? Uh, they're, for the most part, in this U.S. dollar-centric world, they're for other countries to get access to dollars, typically during crises or credit contractions where U.S. dollars can be hard to come by. And so there's sort of, we haven't seen major use of these swap lines since 2020 during like sort of peak COVID in, in March of 2020, there was a lot of borrowing of these swap lines. Uh, we haven't seen that recently, but I think it's sort of to some degree like bracing for impact or preparing for a storm uh, ahead of time just in case they're needed. And so the frequency of being able to borrow those dollars for foreign central banks uh, is now uh, a daily basis. And so all of that happened. And now we're sitting here, you know, on, on Monday, looking forward, and on Wednesday of this week, March 22nd, we have the FOMC meeting for uh, interest rates for Fed funds. And right now, if we look at uh, CME has a Fed watch tool, there's a 73% implied probability of a 25 basis point hike, a 27% chance of no hike. If we look at the two-year treasury, which tends to lead Fed funds, uh, the two-year treasury has gone from 5% at its peak 12 days ago to 3.9% in the matter of 12 days, that's an extreme decline. And again, the two year sort of tends to front run a lot of the decisions that the Fed ends up making on Fed funds. And so we're starting to see this story of more support from Fed and Treasury uh, to, to sort of backstop any issues in the financial plumbing uh, or the, the financial system. We're starting to see the market start to say, hey, are we going to see a, a pausing or a pivoting from the Fed at the moment? And then this, this all sort of plays into some of the response and the price action that we've seen from Bitcoin. Yeah, and I think that that's a good place to go. But, you know, just, just to kind of reflect back on everything that you said, you know, it seems like a series of fairly extraordinary measures are being taken by, you know, the Fed, the Treasury, and even like, you know, other central banks around the world to basically stave off, you know, an all out crisis, you know, and, you know, in the banking system. And I wonder, like, and I don't want to put you on the spot, Jack, but like when we think about like other kind of crises, you know, whether it was COVID or, you know, 2008, like what are there any levers you know, obviously the degree to which you pull them maybe, but are there any other levers that haven't been pulled that was kind of in that playbook that, you know, exist, are still left? Or are, are they really pulling out all the stops here? Well, 
what I would just say more generally, what you tend to see is like, for instance, this bank term uh, financing program, this BTFP program that the Fed rolled out. Like, what is the net effect of the program? It's to take impaired assets from bank balance sheets and allow them to get readily available liquidity at par, regardless of if the, the asset is impaired. And so like the Fed's balance sheet can grow as a result of that. And supposedly it's only going to happen for a year. But we tend to see a lot of these types of programs that are put on a timeline tend to, to stay or stick around for a while. And so what you end up seeing is different types of intervention that gets named different things, but it all at the end of the day kind of has similar net effects of adding liquidity to the system, easing certain constraints. And so there's been this discussion going on right now of is this QE? If you look at the balance sheet, is this quantitative easing? And like there's a technical argument from some that is like, no, this is not quantitative easing. This is very different. We're, you know, we're seeing a credit contraction and these banks are going to lend less as a result of all of these issues that are happening right now. Right. They're going to get more conservative uh, with the loans that they make. And then there's also just sort of the. I guess, more simplistic argument of like, you can call these things whatever you want to call them. But at the end of the day, the mechanics of what's happening is, you know, you're naming different programs to get liquidity into the hands of these financial institutions. And it's all sort of similar things. So a long winded way of saying like each event is its own unique sort of crisis of some sorts. And right now it happens to be around these regional banks because of the duration risk that's out on their balance sheet. Um, but in a certain way, it's like it's very similar to different issues that we've had in the past where you call different programs different things, but they're all at, at the end of the day netting to the same outcome, which is easing the system uh, by injecting you know, sort of dollar liquidity. So, so, Jack, are you is it fair to say that because of these market conditions, you are seeing a lot of action in Bitcoin price? Because I think I I heard a former CTO of Coinbase, uh, Balaji, said that Bitcoin might actually go to a million dollars in the next 90 days. And he actually <laughs> wagered a, a, a million dollar bet. Are you seeing all of this? Are you seeing the, the, the price change of Bitcoin because of these market conditions? Uh, yeah, so I don't I don't know if I'm quite that uh, hyperbolic uh, or whatever you want to call it as as Balaji making headlines with this million dollar call. I don't, I don't know if that's a, a, a serious uh, take or not. I think his whole point that uh, that he's trying to make is, is sort of at some point similar to like what Parker Lewis has talked about. Like you have a gradually and then a suddenly moment of like, hey, there are only you know 21 million Bitcoin in, in theory, right? And that a lot of things that are that are playing out have happened sort of along the lines of what Bitcoin was born to do and uh, you know, created in the 2008 financial crisis. Chancellor on the brink of second bailouts was you know was the the genesis block inscription. And all of these sort of events happening have sh sort of shifted the narrative of Bitcoin for the time being, right? We see year to date, Bitcoin's up 70%, S&P's up 3%, month to date, Bitcoin up 22%, S&P down 1%. We see gold getting a really strong bid for gold over the month to date, up 8 9%. That's really like for in, in gold terms, that's a huge month. Uh, I know for, for crypto, that's a day. <laughs> um, and even the relative strength of Bitcoin relative to other digital assets, we've seen like ETH BTC, the, the ratio on a relative basis is down close to 10%. ETH is only up 10% month to date. Bitcoin's up 22% month to date. And so are we leaving behind a narrative 
that we had last year, which was Bitcoin is just a proxy for the non-profitable technology index. Like I've tweeted this out a few times. If, if anyone wants to, to find the chart, uh, there's a, a, this, this overlay of the non-profitable tech index with Bitcoin. And if you match the axes up, it looks like the same chart. And that was the narrative we were getting, even on like sort of the institutional side was like, hey, we'll buy it when we're bullish on technology stocks. But if yeah. we're not, if we think there's this contraction, then we're not going to own it. Versus right now, what we're seeing is a different narrative start to evolve. And I don't have a statement or a view on whether or not it sticks. Uh, I think in the long term, this is the narrative of Bitcoin. But you know, counterparty free, immutable, transparent ledger, that's like a true alternative asset and, and an aspiring store of value asset. And so I, I think that's the narrative that you're seeing play out right now, because you kind of have a combination of issues in you know, the, the financial system with banks and people starting to ask questions around the structure of these banks combined with sort of this undertone or narrative of, hey, might the Fed be pausing come Wednesday? And, and they're stepping in and, and putting these different programs together that we talked about. Are they QE? Are they not? They're supportive of financial markets regardless. And so all of that sort of plays into Bitcoin um, or at least the narrative of Bitcoin. And then you have to ask the question, you know, does, does that narrative stick or is this just sort of a, a brief glimpse in time? Yeah. Jack, you mentioned that ETH BDC is down by, by 8% or 9% in the last month. And typically we have seen that the price of Bitcoin goes up first and then that follows with, with all the alts coming up. So do you see something similar happening this time around as well? I mean, that's the, I guess that's the counter argument to the like, hey, people are having this awakening around Bitcoin being a separate asset from other assets. I think you point to sort of the historical fact, which is typically if we see bear market rallies and then Bitcoin sort of can hold this range right now, then we'll see the follow through of Ethereum and other other alts. And you could say like the speculative uh, end of crypto will sort of follow through. That's what we've seen historically. And so I do think if Bitcoin holds this range or continues to run, one of the really interesting things of uh, as to whether or not this new narrative for Bitcoin is emerging will be that ETH BTC ratio will be the you know Bitcoin dominance relative to the rest of crypto and whether or not that holds or if it's sort of the same thing as we've always seen historically. Yeah, I mean, I have a hard time with this. We've spent a really long time, you know, if you've been around a while in crypto talking about, you know, the medium of exchange and the store of value kind of value props. And obviously that in the last market cycle, like really kind of died out that theory. Right. And so I hesitate to kind of jump right back on board with, oh, here we here we go with the digital gold, digital store of value uh, narrative. But it will be something that's kind of interesting to watch. When we think about the level of reactivity, right, like Bitcoin, obviously way more volatile than, you know, some of these other assets that we're talking about. Like, I think that that is also attributed to just like market sizing. I think what Bitcoin's like around like 4% of gold's market cap, I think right now. And so when you see kind of these macro events, like, of course, there's going to be a greater level of reactivity in the Bitcoin price versus, you know, what everything else is doing. It's just because the, the market is that much smaller when you think about capital moving around. And so I think what obviously is notable with this is this is kind of the inverse of what we've seen where there's this kind of broader flight to safety previously, you know, in the last market cycle, Bitcoin was really viewed as a risk asset. So that to me is like the notable change. 
it's kind of a double-edged sword because I think it would take things to get really bad, which of course we don't want to see, um, you know, in banking or in TradFi for people to really kind of take a harder look at that, at that narrative. And, and, you know, I, I think for us to really start to see it cement its position as, you know, digital gold, like a safe haven asset. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to watch. Crypto markets are certainly benefiting heavily from, from what's going on, whether it's six to your point, Jack, I think is really going to be the, the key. One one last thing I'll add to this conversation, which is we are in, I think, a different market native to crypto because of what happened to centralized lenders last year. And we still don't under like fully know, nobody really knows what that ultimately means because we had tons of rehypothecation. There was, in some cases, likely fraud. Right. That's what appears to have been the case. And you have all of these major lenders that either had poor risk management practices or in some cases worse that were lending against Bitcoin, that were rehypothecating and lending out Bitcoin. And now you really don't have much of that because all of those desks either closed shop or were forced to close shop. Uh, and and so now we're, we're going to find out what happens in a market that. A lot more people are either thinking about self-custody or thinking about like, hey, let me make sure I'm holding assets at a custodian that I that I can actually trust and I, I think actually has my coins. And in that case, like there is less uh, paper Bitcoin as if some people want to call it that, where we do know for a fact, like in some of these cases, there was Bitcoin that people were holding that were they, they were depositing those assets. And then the Bitcoin was subsequently sold or never bought in the first place. And these other tokens were being bought with that, those assets or venture capital investments were being made into different tokens. But in reality, people thought they had Bitcoin when they didn't. And that just creates a, a very different market. So I, I don't know what that ultimately means, but I do think that it means that the price you know, might move differently than it did in the past. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's, let's switch gears into something pretty vastly different. Um, and that is Arbitrum and their their token drop. I, Parth, you want to give us kind of a like the historical context on this, um, and then we can kind yeah. of talk about the implications more broadly. Okay, sounds good. I think it's going to be uh, a twenty minute discussion. So, are you guys good for the next twenty? We're good. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Cool. So, so I think in the past uh, few months, what we have seen is uh, we have seen kind of two DeFi narratives, right? So the one is more around wallet wars, which I think we have covered extensively. And then the second one is around scaling wars, right? Or scaling technology. So the idea is the mission is to scale Ethereum in such a way uh, that it's fast and it's also cheap. And as of now, Arbitrum is kind of the, the top contender, right? So for some of you may know this, but Arbitrum is a layer two rollup on Ethereum. And uh, the big news is, that last week Arbitrum announced a retroactive airdrop, which basically means that it's giving out ARP tokens to its users. And this was close to 12.5% of the total supply of ARP tokens, right? And so I think close to a year ago, we discussed, we spoke about Optimism and how, so Optimism is Arbitrum's top competitor and they did an airdrop last year. And ever since then, Arbitrum has had a massive uptick of people using their protocols in hopes of getting these, these free airdrop tokens, right? And so I think it's worth mentioning that Arbitrum itself has two different networks, right? So you have Arbitrum One, which is where you have all of your DeFi and NFT, and that's where most of the value is, That's which is close to 1.3, 1.4 billion. Uh, and then the second one is called Arbitrum Nova, 
which is mostly for gaming and social applications. So I think we spoke about Reddit community points. Those exist on Arbitrum Nova, the second network. Mm -hmm. So the question is, why did Arbitrum decide to do this token launch? Because it's clearly the worst market ever. You don't have a lot of speculators in. Why would you do a token launch now? Right. And so the reason is that Arbitrum did this token launch because they wish to transition Arbitrum from being owned by one company, which is called Offchain Labs. They are the founding company. And they wish to transition from Offchain Labs to a DAO-based governance model. Right. And so my speculation is, uh, and again, strictly, this is my personal opinion, but Arbitrum is one of the very few protocols that was until now fully controlled by one single company. Right. And I think the landscape in regulation, plus some of these crackdowns in DeFi, uh, kind of led them to do a token launch. Uh, and it made sense for them to go from being controlled by one single company to a DAO uh, pretty quickly. So that's kind of the context. And so, so, so I, have a, I have a question, comment on that. So we've kind of seen this play out with a couple of different protocols. And, and you know, we've talked quite a bit of, in the past about, you know, the the difficulties of governance in a DeFi context, right? And so when you go from having centralized control to, you know, a DAO structure where you have more people voting on, you know, certain um, programmatic things, right, related to the to the protocol, like there's there's challenges with that. It isn't necessarily more efficient and it can kind of present a different set of issues. So like, do, do you think like, what are your thoughts on that in, in terms of, you know, how do you think that plays into them, that, the, you know, their decision to do this and, and what the, the protocol will be able to achieve moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. So I think providing some context around what exactly Offchain Labs did and what their duties were would probably be more helpful. And then I can talk about how uh, why and how would they transition it from a company to uh, to a DAO, right? And how what, what are the challenges that they're going to face? So the simple idea of rollups is that when you have something like an Arbitrum or an Optimism or any of these ZK rollups, you have a party called a sequencer, right? And so you have a sequencer who decides the transaction order and uh, they decide who, who are going to do emergency updates in case something bad happens, who's going to do verification of nodes, and all of these important duties as of now are done by off-chain labs, right? And so now having this DAO, the token holders of the ARP token will decide on who they wish to have as a sequencer, right? And so, and so I, I know that's a lot of uh, sort of different duties, but I think the holy grail is to have a decentralized sequencer. So if you have a centralized sequencer doing it by themselves, you get the benefits of efficiency of speed. In case something bad happens, uh, then you have just a bunch of people upgrading the network. However, once you transition it to a DAO, things obviously get more slow, but it's more decentralized. So typically what we see is that for the first few years of the protocol, they tend to be more centralized than not, right? So that's when you have to sort of grow it to a scale where you have enough number of transactions, enough number of active users, and then you transition it uh, to a DAO when it's in a more uh, mature state, um, I would say. So that's kind of the difference. Um, but I do feel like maybe uh, this, it also makes sense to do a quick refresher on rollups because I think we will see a lot of new news on rollups in the next two or three weeks. So Polygon is going to come out with their ZK EVM rollup on March 27th. Uh, then you have Scroll doing the same, ZK Sync doing something similar. And um, in fact, it was kind of funny because I, so when I went to ETH Denver, you had these booths of these protocols. So you Arbitrum had a table, Optimism had a table. 
ZK Sync and Polygon uh, had tables and they were pretty close to each other. <laughs> and so interestingly enough, uh, both if you go and talk to folks on ZK Sync and Polygon, both of them would say that they are the first uh, mainnet ZK EVM chain and they were like right next to each other, right? And none, both of them haven't launched yet. So so it's, it's so you're you're truly seeing scaling wars, which honestly is a good thing for uh, Ethereum um, uh, users, but you're seeing scaling wars uh, fully blow out and that's going to be the narrative in the next uh, two or three months. So, um, so yeah, so I, I think it, there's some value in us kind of doing a recap of what exactly it is when we're talking about when we're talking about rollups. And then I have some other questions for you, but let's, let's start there just for the audience's uh, benefit. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you have this idea of rollups where the idea is to actually roll up transaction information and then store the finality, store the settlement on Ethereum, on the main chain, right? And so even between rollups, you have two different kinds of rollups. You have optimistic rollups and you have ZK rollups, which are zero knowledge rollups. So in ZK rollups, you have a smart contract, which verifies a proof that all of these transactions happened, right? However, for optimistic rollups, transactions are seen valid at face value unless someone disputes that transaction and says that, hey, this transaction is incorrect. And so the important point worth noting is that right now there are barely any of these disputes, right? Like maybe half a dozen in the last two years, right? And so, which basically goes on to say that optimistic rollups in its current state, they actually work fine. They work pretty well. But now that Arbitrum is transitioning to a DAO, things are gonna get more interesting because you will see new sequencers new actors who may or may not be malicious and uh, and they also wish they also want to become a sequencer right so things are i i, I think you would see a new state of rollups in the next uh, in the next two or three months uh, but that's kind of the idea uh, of rollups D- does that make sense yeah yeah no um and so the question that i had is have for you parth is you know is this the scaling wars is that to address a problem that we have currently or is it is the idea to kind of position these different protocols for future adoption and kind of the transaction throughput that would be needed for a lot of the use cases that we talk about with these L2s yeah that's a that's a really good question like are we, I think are we bumping before, up against like the maximum throughput now like and is that why everyone's racing towards this or is it you know if we start to see like real transaction volume related to gaming or some other, you know, like high volume use case, you know, we would need to be able to support that throughput. Yeah, I think it's mostly dependent on the number of Ethereum users you have using the network. So before 2021, all of these rollups were kind of nice to have, right? Like, hey, some stuff is happening, new technology coming out. But then when you started having Ethereum transaction fee shoot up to $100, $200 per transaction, then it suddenly became a necessity. Then people were like, hey, we, we, we have to use these rollups. In fact, um, Arbitrum, which happens to be the biggest layer to rollup, it flipped Ethereum in terms of number of transactions done in a single day. Uh, and it, I think it did that twice in the last few weeks. So there is real value where people wish to interact with their favorite protocols, but they want to do it fast and they want to do it cheaply. And so that's where you have a lot of this innovation which was really nice to have before 2021, but now there's a lot of more, like people are putting more gas into it just because people know that uh, it's it's unreasonable to pay transaction fee on Ethereum. Like even now, if I do an Ethereum transaction, it's close to five or $6 for a really basic swap, right? 
Um, and so I think that's the transition where we saw that initially it was just an idea, but now we have Arbitrum, Optimism, ZK Sync, and Polygon really uh, scale it up uh, and make it more more mainstream. It's basically table stakes, right? Where eventually everyone will have it. It will be kind of assumed as an assumed capability. And I guess the question from there is like, what what are there? What is the differentiator after? You have rollups, right? Like, what's the what's the next um, big enhancement from a from a platform perspective? Yeah, so I think within the community there is consensus that zk rollups or zero knowledge proof rollups are kind of the end game, right? So you may have heard a lot of buzz around zk EVM, uh, which is which is kind of the holy grail, and so zk EVM is a, a, a zk rollup which is fully compatible with an Ethereum virtual machine. Right, and so like I mentioned earlier, Polygon stated they're going to go live on mainnet on March 27th. Um, then I think zk Sync said that their mainnet is live to a few builders. Scroll, which is the third competitor, they said that uh, they are active on uh, Gorly testnet, which is the last step before they go on mainnet. But I think the question is the question that you're probably hinting at is why. What, what do we really need these technological upgrades, right? Like is, is ZK EVM really, truly the, the end game? And so in my opinion, there are again, pros and cons to both optimistic rollups and ZK rollups. As of now, optimistic rollups like Optimism Arbitrum, they have the first mover advantage and I think they're doing great right now, right? So when you think about fraud proofs, there are half a dozen fraud proofs in the last year and a half or two years, they scale they give you security in transactions and they're also cheap, right? And if you look at all these new ZK EVM products, they are so, so new, right? So this code is so fresh. And so in my opinion, I think they'll have to stand the test of time before I can decide, before someone like me would actually go and use these uh, protocols with majority of my wealth, yeah. right? And so it's just... Having been in the ZK space for a while, I know how incredibly hard it is to convert those EVM opcodes into circuits. And uh, it's just that to me, it's almost magical on how fast they're doing it, which also kind of scares me. So for the next three to four years, I'm I'm still trusting optimistic rollups more than ZK rollups. But maybe once all the bugs or glitches have been found out in these ZK EVMs, maybe then I would transition uh, to those protocols. What about like, I guess the biggest cited differentiator or upgrade that ZK can offer is like more or less instant finality versus the one week wait times associated with optimistic rollups. Is there any anything that can be done by these by optimistic rollups in terms of offering a, a better user experience for funds to settle back to the L1 and, and be accessible? Yeah, so I think that's that's a really good point. And that's actually one of the biggest difference between ZK rollups and optimistic rollups. To achieve finality, optimistic rollups take around seven days at most, and ZK rollups are almost instantaneous. So again, these are trade-offs where do you wish to trust a code which is something really new, which is which just came out, versus trusting something which is already working, which is functional. Mm. And so at the end of it, people want instant finality. But then as of now, all of these protocols are so new that it, it comes with a cost uh, and, and a significant risk. And I suppose, again, it depends on what your use case is, right? Like in, in certain certain applications, you may be okay waiting the week for, for your funds to clear. Whereas if you have financial 
transactions and anything adjacent to crypto financial services, you would want something that's more, you know, um, instantaneous from a settlement perspective. And that's the exact same strategy that Arbitrum did. So you have two networks, Arbitrum 1, which has all DeFi and NFT stuff, which is actually far more secure than Arbitrum Nova, which only has gaming and social applications. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something which you would see in the future. There is a there is another sort of concept of super chains. I don't know if you guys have heard of that. So the idea of super chains is to have these L2s, or some people call them L3s, which are application specific, right? <laughs> Jack is smiling because I, I feel like as soon as I- We haven't even finished L2s, building L2s. the L2s and now we're talking about- <laughs> Building the next layer. Kind of starting to feel like enterprise technology stack. Is like the L1 like the mainframe computer? <laughs> I think it is. Yeah, that's that's the idea. When, yeah. when you want maximum security, you, you go back to your old trading systems or stuff on mainframe. But if you want to get something really fast, then you move on to L2s. And if you want something which is more application specific, like if I want to play a game on, on ZK Sync, then I can use this specific application because I do not wish to interact with other L2s. That's kind of the idea. But that's the TLDR. I think there's going to be a lot of news around uh, ZK EVM chains and optimistic rollups. And uh, the whole idea of optimistic rollups is to do computation off-chain, but have finality on Ethereum, on the main chain. My guess is that for the next uh, three to four years, you would still see a lot of traction on Optimism and Arbitrum or any other optimistic rollups. But then it will smoothly transition to ZK EVMs uh, in the future. And I think even these protocols like Arbitrum, they've been pretty upfront with the fact that if they feel ZK technology is much superior, they themselves would switch out from optimistic to ZK rollups. It's really encouraging to see so much development talent focused on this. Like I know we like spend a lot of time tracking like where's the talent going, right? And so to me, like you have a lot of highly qualified, you know, devs. And you still have the risk associated with it being new and not really necessarily completely tested out yet. But I take some comfort in the fact that there's so many eyes on this right now, right? And I think that will just continue to be the trend because, you know, of broad yeah. market forces and these different protocols trying to just stay competitive with what they're table stakes are going to need to be moving forward. And Parth, one of the big things, we talked a a little bit before uh, we got on air here, and I was saying I was doing some research into L2s in in recent weeks, and one of the things I never really fully comprehended was the fact that even when Vitalik put out his latest updated roadmap around Ethereum, it's really all focused around even the base layer upgrades to Ethereum – helping create this roll-up centric future of of Ethereum where a lot of transactions, like all the throughput additions made to the network are happening on these L2s, effectively like off-chain that's secured by by Ethereum rather than the original vision or the vision a few years ago that was like, we're going to shard the main chain. A lot of that, like there's not even a reference to sharding on the current roadmap. And so that's been sort of thrown out the window, whereas things like protodank sharding helping these L2s is on Ethereum's roadmap. And then sort of this focus around L2s, like we're talking about here today, like that's really the future of, of things to watch on Ethereum is the evolution of these optimistic and ZK rollups. Absolutely. I think if I, and, and this is mostly for the listeners, but I would actually take a step back and just learn about rollups because I think this is going to be the future where you have most people and most protocols being hosted on these rollups. And so it's good to sort of have that knowledge and what the trade-offs are between them. Um, 
the the idea up exactly what you said jack ethereum and most of the evm compa- compatible chains are moving in a direction where they are more roll up centric that's why you have eip 4844 which is going to be after the shanghai upgrade uh which makes roll up transactions even cheaper or settling from roll ups even cheaper so yeah i think there are a bunch of roll ups out optimism arbitrum zk sync polygon um scroll metas and uh i think users will sort of decide on what they where they want to interact just to give like one final thought just to sort of tell you where the industry is thinking about uh, uh, on roll ups so coinbase which uh, came out with their own roll up called base also uses optimism's stack so they are using the op stack to build their own roll up so you will see that a lot of these protocols are also pretty modular and uh, you will almost see roll up as a service right become a thing for each of these um application specific use cases it is like maybe just to add the the last point here is similar to like at the end of talking about bitcoin and macro we said like maybe this is a, a different environment because now lenders of these assets no longer exist i do think the the inclusion or the existence of l2s being able to put through transactions at the rate that they're doing right now changes the environment for alt layer 1 assets and makes you really have to think hard about if we do see you know whenever we do possibly see another bull run is it just bitcoin and eth at this point for the most part and like the l2s alongside eth that help scale it because that's really the defense mechanism that ethereum has against smart contract l1s that are competing against it mm-hmm. and eth has the network effects so i do think again that's another one of those things of sure we have the historical analogs but there are all of these new pieces of information that are being baked into the market um for ethereum these l2s that sort of changed the game yeah in some respect great all right guys this was an awesome conversation jack thanks for thanks for taking us through the the updates on the banking front and um par thanks you know for for talking about l2s and thanks everyone for staying on for the extended session and we'll uh we'll see you next week have a great rest of your week Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and become illiquid at any time and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners all others are the property of FMR LLC copyright 2023 FMR LLC all rights reserved 1040156